I'm John McElroy, and on Autoline this week, we'll be talking about the new book, Engines of Change, which spotlights 15 historic vehicles and their impact on American culture. Not only will I be joined by the book's award-winning author, Paul Ingrassia, but my journalist panel includes Drew Winter from WardsAuto.com and Todd Lassa from Motor Trend and Motor Trend Classic. Stay tuned for some talk about some very classic cars. Underwriting for Auto Line this week is provided by... We are IAC Group, a global tier one supplier of vehicle interior solutions that span the rapid, ever-changing needs of today's industry. From interior design and engineering to manufacturing and delivery, IAC, our heritage, your advantage. From the Auto Line Studios, here is your host, John McElroy. We're going to be talking about Engines of Change, the new book from Paul Ingrassia, the Pulitzer Prize winner. Not for this book yet. Maybe you'll get there. But what I find so interesting about this is you've picked the top 15 cars in your view that had the most impact on American culture and history. And I find it fascinating that you, you compiled that kind of a list. Why? Well, you know, National Geographic over the years, John, has made a whole magazine about doing articles about... Um, what the spoons of the ancient Etruscans can tell us about the ancient Etruscans, right? So I thought, well, gee, automobiles are cultural artifacts as well as, you know, devices for transportation. Uh, so I wanted to choose 15 cars that really had an impact on how we think and live as a people. Uh, even today, not best cars or worst cars, but impact, culturally impactful cars. How'd you make this decision? You, you, you've got 15 vehicles. We'll get into a lot of them. I don't know if we'll get into them all, but how, why these 15? Well, you know, uh, part of it was just a matter of thinking about what, what, you know, the tail fins of the 50s, for example, uniquely captured the sky's the limit ethos of that, of that era of America. And part of it, you know, I went down to the Henry Ford Museum and saw the vehicles on display there. I talked to people. I just sort of said, what you know, what really, what had an impact, essentially, and how we, we live and we think today. Um, so it was just a process of saying, putting down on paper, what are a bunch of vehicles? Specifically, what was the impact? And then crossing some off. Well, well, as, as, as an industry guy, I really appreciated the book because there are so many out there now that just talk about uh, the worst cars or the best cars and everything from a product standpoint. But this one really gets into the, the, the cultural impact. And so we see cars like the Corvair, which, which, which show up in, in um, you know, odd ways in culture. But I think you, you really went into some stuff. Uh, how big a part of, I mean, obviously there was the Ralph Nader connection, but I think you explained that in a lot more detail that I found pretty fascinating. Well, thanks, Drew. You know, one of the fun, you know, books are sort of tough to write in a way. I'm sorry this one's done because I had so much fun just going back through old archives and seeing Ed Cole on the cover of Time in October of 1959, in which he, he's the cover story, right, when the Corvair is launched, and he says, if I was any more proud of our new Chevrolet Corvair, I think I'd blow up. I mean, you cannot beat that quote for irony, can you? Sadly. Uh, anyway. <laughs> it, it's a great book for stories and people, and, and I have to say I have a big problem with this book, and that problem is I wish I'd written it. I mean, it, it's one of these, <laughs> your, your, your uh, opening chapter uh, talking about the uh, Ford Model T and the, um, and the LaSalle, 
the only cars you talk about that are pre-war, I, I think, is real pre-World War II. Pre-World War II. Right. We got to get our war straight here these right. days. Well, that's, that's true, but pre-war is uh, we're all old enough to think of that as pre-World War II, right? And th that those two cars um, are they're, they're kind of the epitome of of what made what has made GM and Ford different, even to this day, in the way they uh, they they market and sell cars. So. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you were thinking of that at the time? Well, you know, that's, that's really a great question, Todd, because, you know, I did try to step back a little bit. After I sort of, when I was drawing up my list of cars, I tried to step back and say, pretend this is not a, a car book. Let's just pretend it's about culture. Um, and, you know, what the, the, the yin-yang of American culture is this constant tug-of-war through the last 200 and some years between you know the upscale and the downscale, the practical and the pretentious, uh, you know that sort of thing, which is really reflected in the cars that we that have come into vogue in various times throughout our our history. I mean, it's no accident that tail fins epitomized the 50s and the the Honda Accord, or maybe in a more negative sense, the Gremlin signified the the, the 70s when it was a more sober era. I mean, you know, the Gremlin and the Jimmy Carter 70s, you couldn't make it up, could you? <laughs> it's just perfect <laughs> symmetry. <laughs> you know, one problem I had with the book was that um, I was really, you talked about it in your afterward a little bit about some of the ones that almost made it, like yeah. Ford, Taurus and stuff. But but what were some of the others? You know, I mean, the, the Audi 5000 for me comes to mind is, is a very uh, a significant uh, a car culturally and, and industry-wise, but but what is, can you talk about some of the others that maybe just you know were were close and then you had to you had to to get rid of them? Yeah, Drew. I mean, the the late Jerry Flint, uh, when I was working on this book, um, just beat me up regularly for not from when I, after I told him I was not going to put the '57 Chevy in the book. <laughs> huge car for the industry, huge car for America. But then when I said, you know. When we go back and think about how do we live and think as a people that is different today because that car existed, it was hard for me to sort of pinpoint a reason. I can tell you why we live and think differently because of the Corvair or the Mustang uniquely capturing that youth culture of the, of the, uh, of the early 60s and the JFK years and, and that sort of thing. Uh, tail fins symbolizing this, you know, over-the-top ethos. Uh, but there were some great cars, the 57 Chevy, the Taurus, the Audi, you know, uh, the, it was just not, it was not any... There wasn't a lasting impact. Yeah, a lasting cars. cultural impact. Mm -hmm. A lasting industry impact, yes. But that's not what this book's about. I'll, I'll let others write that book. <laughs> mm -hmm. Go back to what uh, Todd raised of the, the pre-war, World War II. Ford Model T juxtaposed mm -hmm. against the LaSalle, which was uh, a brand by Cadillac, right. just a step below Cadillac, right. that most Americans today, I dare say, don't even know it ever existed. Why'd you choose that car? It was the first Harley Earl car, John. It was the first mass market designer car. It was really This the first... was the first car that was styled in a styling studio. Exactly. Is what you're saying. American automobile my design producer. styling really was born there, and then and it, Harley Earl was the father of it. This was his first car for General Motors. It's why Alfred Sloan brought him into the, uh, into the company. And, you know, you go forward, your point about people never heard of it. You remember the old uh, All in the Family show with Archie Bunker and the introductory song, G.R. Old LaSalle Ran Great. That, that, that's where most Americans would know it from. Yeah, absolutely. They don't even know what that meant, most Americans. <laughs> Not only that, but I mean, it would be almost, uh, it would send the wrong message because if you know what it, LaSalle is, you think, well, this that would have been too pricey a car for 
Archie Bunker and, and oh, absolutely. Edith to be driving. So uh, it just happened to sound good in the song, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, it, it, it did work, yeah. Well, but, I connected with it because it is. I mean, there was really no design studios until uh, until it came up with the until the LaSalle, really. I mean, there were cars were just kind of engineered, and I don't even know how they. Well, it's, you know, it wasn't a competitor to Packard too. It was, you know, Cadillac was sort of getting its each, its lunch eaten by Packard, uh, which was stylish but a little bit lower than Cadillac on the price scale. So that's from an industry standpoint, that's the significance of the LaSalle, but from a cultural standpoint, and also the fact, the symmetry, that it actually was introduced the year the Model T died, which was a, you know, for 20 years, Americans thought of automobiles as devices for physical mobility. All of a sudden, the LaSalle comes along, and Alfred Sloan comes along, and automobiles are a device for social mobility. Huge sea change. I mean, if you, if you were a mathematician, right, and you're going to write an equation, you would basically say mass production, which is Henry Ford, plus mass marketing, Alfred Sloan, equals mass consumption, and that equals modern America. And that, that's the equation. Well, and this LaSalle for me, and, and maybe I've got this wrong, but I mean, for me, it, it kind of also sets up the, uh, that whole Sloan price ladder from Absolutely. Chevy to Pontiac, Olds, Oakland, then Buick, you know, and, and up against Ford, who only bought Lincoln uh, to help out his uh, friend uh, when Lincoln was struggling, uh, Leyland. Um, but I guess getting to something a little bit newer, uh, Mustang is a real central car here, obviously. Right. Um, and uh, while that sold, what, three or 400,000 in its first year, and we were talking uh, about how 1965 was the first uh, 10 million year in the U.S., uh, the Chevy Impala and, and its uh, variants sold more than a million. So. The book is more about not so much about the big volume car, but the the impact that the uh, that the Mustang had on the rest of the industry. Well, yeah, or really on a rest of society, I would say more than more than the industry. I mean, what was fascinating to me about this again, when you go back and you know do a lot of archival research, and that was part of this, and part of it was also talking to people about their car memories and and things that they they lived through. It was fascinating seeing how the the Ford Falcon really formed the basis for the Mustang, which was not a connection made in the popular mind. Um, in fact, one of the, um, uh, a Ford executive in late 1964 described it to the Detroit Free Press uh, by saying, you know, because the, the Mustang was a body on top of the Falcon chassis. Mm -hmm. He said, look, you, you, you take a woman, uh, you, you put her hair up in a bun, you put her in horn room, rim glasses, you flatten out her chest and out her behind, and you put her in sneakers and you have the school librarian. Now you take that same woman and you let her hair down and you put her in contact lenses and you pad out her chest and her behind, put her in spiked heels, and you have a sex pot. I mean, no one would speak that way today. <laughs> so it was a, I mean. Sounds like Mad Men. Yeah, it, exactly. Well, yeah, I was yeah. thinking the same thing. Or the, the, the great ad for the Volkswagen Microbus in 1963, a full-page ad that said, do you have the right kind of wife for it? Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. no one would do that today. But it, the fun of this was sort of seeing how people thought and lived back then. And uh, and you didn't choose the Volkswagen Beetle or the Microbus. Uh, no, they're they're in the book. Uh, they are in the book, but they are they're transitional cars, if you will. They are uh, cars that really were once you came, at the, they were the anti Cadillacs, John. I mean, basically, uh, they were cars that really showed dissent, if you will, from the um, the ostentation, you know, the conspicuous consumption. Uh, they were non-conformity cars. 
But of course, a decade later in the 60s, they become the new conformity, <laughs> you see. I mean, that's what it, really what it was. So talk a little bit. I think probably my least favorite choice in there was, was you had the DeLorean in there, right? Or, uh, the, or the GTO. 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 John DeLorean. Yeah. John DeLorean and yeah, GTO. GTO. Okay, right. yeah. And, and that was, you know, I, I, I was thinking, oh, maybe if it was me, maybe I would have had the 49 Ford or, or I don't know, any numbers. Talk about your, why, you, why you made that decision. Well, you know, if you look at this, again, step away from cars just for a minute. If you look at the 60s, there were two parts of the 60s. There was the first part and the second part, which you can define as the good 60s and the bad 60s, basically. So the good 60s was, you know, civil rights, okay? It was the Beatles and it was the Mustang. The, the late 60s were urban riots, okay? It was the Rolling Stones, not the Beatles, and it was the GTO, the, the bad boy car. Now, the truth is the Mustang and the GTO actually were introduced in the same year, uh, but the Mustang flowered before the GTO did. So I just thought these two cars sort of captured the, 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 the sort of the a tug of war between the good half of that decade and the bad half when things, frankly, went off track in a lot of ways in this country. The Pontiac GTO was pretty ephemeral, though, in comparison, wasn't it? And Absolutely. would you consider that that also Absolutely. fits in with the late 60s uh, with what happened there? Uh, yeah, I, definitely. I mean, the, the GTO throughout its lifespan, um, you know, never sold as much as the Mustang did in its heyday in one year and, you know, half a million uh, cars, and I think in 65 and that yeah. sort of thing. So, Well, and then insurance and, and gas prices and, and emissions killed Well, the funny the thing seven. was, you know, back in those days, I talked to a guy who was an early GTO owner when he was a boy racer in, in Livingston, New Jersey, and he said that, um, you know, when he first got his car, he was shocked that he got a compact car discount because the insurance companies didn't keep computerized records oh. back then. It was a compact car. <laughs> Seven years later, they caught on. And so you'd have guys buying a GTO for $3,000 and paying $1,000 a year insurance, and bam, that was the end of that. <laughs> you have two foreign cars that you've picked here, mm -hmm. the, the BMW 3 Series and the Toyota Prius. But yeah. let's start with the 3 Series. Why did you have that as one of the cars that really had an impact on American culture? Yuppies. Okay, I mean, in 1985, there was a group of well-heeled young people out in San Francisco that threw a, uh, a black tie event, a yuppie cotillion, they called it. The um, suggested dress was black tie with Nikes, of course, because these were yuppies. Um, and the, um, they expropriated the BMW logo, unauthorized, of course, and said it stood for beauty, money, wealth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that I'd never heard of before. <laughs> well, so, so here's, I mean, it was this whole... Um, it was two things. It was a new form of ostentatious consumption. In other words, it wasn't, um, it wasn't showy ostentatious like tail fins was. It was functional luxury, which really set the scene for a whole lot of things in our society. I mean, you know, uh, sound dampening, vibration dampening, Rosignol skis and all that kind of high tech. Remember those first uh, metal tennis rackets, you know, that years ago and all that. So this whole functional uh, performance revolution as opposed to showy performance, really, you know, the, the 3 Series captured that, uh, captured that beautifully, actually. Well, so yeah, the three well, I was going to say it's a credit to BMW that it actually survived all that, really, and didn't uh, become. Well, I, it's still kind of a yuppie car, whatever yuppies have become uh, since well, then, the fun, not only the, fun, the 3 the Series, part, but the entire BMW lineup. Well, the fun part of this, that chapter, by the way, was, you know, because the Beetle and the Microbus, talking to some people who, in their 60s, were in college, right? They were hippies with, you know, the whole thing, driving Beatles and buses around. 20 years later, they're 
corporate lawyers driving Beamers. So their, their personal journeys were hippie to yuppie. Their vehicular journeys were, you know, beetle to Beamer. It's just parallel. <laughs> didn't didn't uh, they kind of, didn't the yuppie kind of steal the um, Beamer away from us enthusiasts who, <laughs> uh, who love it for, who loved the early cars for what they were for being nice, tight, handling, sporty sedans? Absolutely. There were a lot of, yeah, it, absolutely. It was stolen, but, B, but BMW loved it because it meant more sales. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, that's a great point that you made, Drew, is that hasn't hurt BMW's cachet. No, they you managed... Know, that could destroy some brands. Yes, they yeah. managed to navigate around that the sort of the, the style or the fashion element that inevitably goes out of style. They still somehow managed to uh, to maintain really the, the fundamental brand image. Without well, they're great the, cars in the end. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> okay, Prius, let's ask, uh, let's talk about that because it is a good selling car, but it's right. the only hybrid that sells worth anything. Right. Why the Prius in the book? What's, it, what's its impact on American culture? Well, I think it sort of got us thinking about uh, automotive transportation and personal mobility in different ways, sort of blending the personal freedom of the automobile with more, um, uh, you know, with this whole environmental consciousness, if you will which sometimes is overdone, let's be honest. In fact, one of uh, uh, the things I ran across in the, in the book, so in the March of 2007, there's a guy arrested on the freeway in the Bay Area for going more than 100 miles an hour in his Prius. And this comes to the attention of the a guy who writes the car column for the San Jose Mercury News, Mr. Roadshow is the name of the column. And he's very interested in this. He hops on the story because the, the guy who was arrested was Steve Wozniak, of course, co-founder of Apple Computer. So he fires off an email to the Waz and says, well, how, is it true you're arrested for going 105 in your Prius? And the Waz fires back an email says, not true, 104. <laughs> so, so there's this, this online dialogue about the incident that, between the two. And finally, Mr. Roadshow says, well, you know, how did the Prius um, you know, feel going at that? How did it handle going at that speed? And the Waz fires back an email that says, well, not bad. It was kind of like my Hummer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, you have this, yeah. I mean, it's like having a Mac and a PC, dare I say it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about the second generation Prius that made it so much more popular than the first? Maybe, maybe it was production constraint, but is there anything else going on? Yeah, it was bigger. Um, you could fit a family in it easily. Not um, as ugly. Uh, it, or or not certainly as ugly. more attractive. But yep. doesn't, the, doesn't right. the look enhance it just because non-car people can identify it at 50 paces for what it is? There's a reason they call it the Pious Todd. Yeah. Okay. I've and, seen that episode. I love right. that episode. Yeah, well, well, yeah, but, yeah, South Park. The yeah. South, South Park and also Curb Your, Curb Your Enthusiasm yeah. it, you know, played a starring role on that, that yeah. show too, the HBO series. But yeah, I think the distinctive look as opposed to a, uh, a Camry hybrid, uh, the, the Prius let you sort of wear your environmentalism on your sleeve, and you know, so there you were. I mean, but you the know. first generation car, if you see them these Awful. days, they they they're not attractive. Awful. Well, they were just based on the old Echo, which was not a good car to begin right, with. Right, exactly. Right. It was the old Echo. Right. Yeah. And the other thing, Hollywood caught on to it too. In 2003, don't forget. I mean, basically, stars were just lining up at you know in the Oscars to be photographed arriving in their Prius. I mean, you know, it was like. Uh, they were dedicated to the environment as well as, you know, impossibly white teeth and all that stuff. Well, but to your cultural theme, I mean, that really kind of does emphasize it was another way for people to express themselves with their car. I mean, a, a new way, which is, which is like it or not. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting how. Yeah, it, it just it, uh, it seemed to be the, the, the you know, the fu most significant car really in the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years, essentially, because it was so different. Although. 
you know, going back into the history of hybrids, you know, TRW had actually a working hybrid in the in the 70s. Um, the, there was a car in, in the um, early years of the 20th century in Chicago called the Woods Interurban that had two engines, uh, an electric engine for around town and a gasoline engine for between cities. But swapping engines was you know, it was like more trouble than even parallel parking. So they look. Delco Electronic showed me a Chevy Caprice hybrid. I would say this was around 1994 oh, uh, with yeah. lead-acid batteries in the trunk. But it, they were claiming 30 miles to the gallon with this Caprice back then. And it, in fact, if you look at it, uh, Ferdinand Porsches, the first string of cars exactly. he designed were all lower Porsches, and they were all hybrids or electric. They were. They're all hybrids. Exactly. This is 1900, 1901 that we're talking about. But that was, of course, before modern electric electronic engine controls. That mm-hmm. was before modern electronic anything. <laughs> so that, that plus high gas prices made the Prius more, um, you know, more commercially acceptable. Paul, as you look through this whole history of what you've captured here, is there anything that really stands out that, this, that there's certain things common to all these very different kinds of cars that have made them so significant in culture and history? Well, that is a great question, John. And, I, you know, I think one of the things is these cars largely reflected the vision of one person. They were not designed by a committee, and usually that person had to buck the system. I mean, Henry Ford had to fight to build the Model T, even in the company that was named Ford Motor Company, because uh, his other investors at first, before he got sole control, were against it. Uh, they wanted big, expensive cars that had like, big profit margins. Exactly. That's exactly it. I mean, DeLorean bootlegged the GTO into, into production. Uh, Boy, doesn't it, that tell you something, what you're saying here, is that the best cars are not done by the normal product development process? It's some outlier who forces his vision or her vision through? It's his in this case. But. Exactly. I mean, the one possible exception to that would be the Prius. Of course, you know, the Japanese have a different system. They're more consensus-oriented than Americans are. <laughs> but, but this is shocking. I mean, knowing the industry as we do now, which is so tightly controlled, where they watch every penny, and you, you, can, you, know, you talk about several cars, the Corvair, another example, where it was, this whole car was developed on like a secret budget, where he right. kind of stole from, uh, Ed Cole stole from other budgets to build a car. You could never do that well, now. Uh, the, the, the Corvette, cha- Corvette chapter, uh, centering on, on Duntoff, who didn't uh, start the Corvette. No. I mean, he got into right. the program uh, and turned it into a real sports car. I mean, uh, could someone like that exist within the GM organization? We know Bob Lutz, of course, but how does how does a corporation like GM not learn from someone like Duntov and say, we need more guys like this, not fewer, and women? Well, it's a great existential question, I guess. I mean, it's, um, you know, you're always going to find rebels in corporations, and the trick is to, to you know, let them have let them have their way without going overboard. I mean, one can actually argue that GM was too lax on Ed Cole because it didn't really have the proper controls to make that car as, as, on the Corvair as safe as it it should be. So, uh, but you know, it's hard, and that's why you know even in the auto industry you have upstarts like Honda succeeding. I mean, BMW was a nothing company in the late '50s. It was about to be absorbed by Mercedes. By, by Mercedes, absolutely. Uh, when the Quant brothers came along and saved it. So, you know, uh, the great, it's capitalism, it's creative destruction. <laughs> Maybe that's the answer is there, there is no secret formula. These things are just going to happen by dint of somebody's personality who's got a great vision and finally gets enough people to get on board with them. Right, well, I think, that's, I think that's right. I mean, you know, the GTO, basically the corporate brass wanted to kill it. 
And then when they sold uh, 35,000 the first year after selling you know, projections of 5,000, they said, oh, well, we'll make it again, make it another year. <laughs> but does that bode, uh, uh, does that indicate that they're, in for, that, that they're not going to be able to do that again, General Motors or, or maybe Ford or any of the other large corporations, if, if they've got a tighter rein on, on some of these rebels? Well, so the, the, another way of asking that question is, where is the 16th car going to come from? Because this has 15 cars in it, and yeah. could be Silicon Valley. You know, it might not even be a car. I mean, maybe the next car that shapes the culture will be a concept like zip cars that you know it's got people sharing, and you know, I mean, I don't know. Well, one day, you know, we have a merger between eHarmony.com and zip cards, and oh. you know, social networking and cars. And, <laughs> yes, we will. Yes, yes, we will. That's the easy answer. Yeah. But I, I think that uh, the next big breakthrough is going to be with autonomous cars, and whoever builds the first car oh. that can completely drive itself is going to end up in the reprint of this book <laughs> somewhere down the road, because that will be truly transformation. Yeah, whoever gets there first is going to be in the book. But to your point, it might be Google might that be. brings that technology to market, not one of the automakers. That's right. It, it, it might well be. I mean, you have the, the world is so fascinating these days with the, uh, you know, we have, we have cars, uh, you know, which are still a huge force in our society, but more and more there are, you know, computers and electronics and all that stuff. And frankly, the atmosphere for innovation in Silicon Valley has been, you know, what it was in Detroit a century ago. No question about it. In fact, uh, a lot of people have said that Detroit was the Silicon Valley of its day with the amount of innovation and Absolutely. research and development going on here. Absolutely. But that was then. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff going on. In, in, there is. There, there there is really, but it's not at the heyday it was back in the teens and the 20s. No, the, critical, ma the critical mass of it is, not, is, yeah. is more in Silicon Valley today, obviously. Listen, Paul, it's been great. I want to oh. recommend this book for everybody who's watching, Engines of Change by Paul Ingrassia. Pulitzer Prize winner, not for this book, but who knows, maybe he'll get there with this one, too. <laughs> Todd Lassa from Motor Trend, Drew Winner from Wards Auto. want to thank you both for being here, too. And We'll be back here next week for AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for AutoLine This Week has been provided by... We are IAC Group, a global tier one supplier of vehicle interior solutions that span the rapid, ever-changing needs of today's industry. From interior design and engineering to manufacturing and delivery. IAC, our heritage, your advantage.